Hey coaches, I'm just gonna pop in here really fast because I wanna share something with you that I am so excited about. My course for elementary literacy coaches, The Confident Literacy Coach, is live. It's up and running and you can get access to it right now. So here's the deal. When I started out as a coach, I struggled. I had trouble defining my role and communicating it with teachers and administration, and I honestly didn't even know that was something I was gonna have to do. I dreaded PLC days because getting my teachers to collaborate, to speak the same language and create lesson plans together was a total nightmare. And I was so stressed out by modeling and co-teaching in classrooms that I actually avoided it for a long time. It was not a happy time for me, (laughs) but things got so much better. I figured out processes to help my teams of teachers work together. I focused on best practices in reading and writing and identified some high impact strategies to support alignment on my campus. And I began to spend more time in classrooms after I planned thoroughly with teachers before lessons. Basically, I started coaching with confidence. I've collected all the processes and tools that I used to do this work and I've put it all together in one place so you can coach with confidence too. The Confident Literacy Coach is your one-stop shop for everything literacy coaching in elementary school. You'll learn how to define your role and communicate it to your administrator, what best practices you should spend your time on, and my process for collaborative planning, plus so much more that will take your coaching life from frustrated and overwhelmed to effective and confident. You can check it out at Buzzing with Miss B.com. Just click the Confident Literacy Coach at the bottom of the latest post and you'll learn exactly what's in the course and why it will change your coaching for the better. I can't wait to see you there. You're listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast, where we believe that every teacher deserves a coach and every coach does too. I'm Chrissy Beltran, an instructional coach, resource creator, and coffee enthusiast. And I'm your host. Stay tuned for practical tips and honest coaching talk that will help you coach with confidence. Hey coaches, and welcome to episode 85 of Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast. I'm Chrissy Beltran, your host, and today I'm going to welcome Jillian Starr to the podcast. Jillian is of teaching with Jillian Starr, and she's going to help us think today about neurodiversity in education. Now, a lot of times when we think about neurodiversity, we're thinking about students. We're thinking about as teachers, how do we support students and differentiate and respond and provide appropriate supports? But what we're going to talk about today is neurodiversity actually in educators and how instructional coaches can support those educators and make sure that they have the tools that they need to be successful in their jobs. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation with Jillian. I have a lot to learn in this area. And so let's get started. Welcome to the podcast, Jillian. Thank you so much for having me, Christy. I'm excited to be here. I am so excited that you're here too, because this topic is so good. Um, and I was, I was just sharing in my introduction here that I don't know as much about it. So I'm really excited to learn from you today. Um, could you introduce yourself to the listeners and talk a little bit about who you are and how, you know, how you ended up doing the work you're doing and what you, what you do now? Sure. Um, I'm Jillian Starr. I am the teacher behind the website and social media accounts teaching with Jillian Starr. Super original. Um, I was born and raised in Boston, Massachusetts, and I've been teaching for 15 years. I have been a classroom teacher for the past 12 years in grades one, two, and three. And I have a master's degree in elementary education as well as a reading specialist. Um, And my biggest focus, I suppose, in the classroom is ensuring that all of my students can access the content 
in a way that validates and encourages them to learn. So this year is a little different for me. I am six months into an unpaid leave of absence and I'm kind of in the middle of working through this really abrupt trans transition. It's very strange and um, I am really enjoying my time being able to focus back on my teaching community and I feel like I'm in a much better headspace to be able to do that than I was last spring. So I'm in a place where I can now offer that support. And while it's been a really strange six months, I am finally learning how to find myself outside of teaching and outside of being a teacher, which is um, something I haven't been able to do for 15 years. So it's been a really interesting challenge and I'm just excited to be here and have this be a part of that journey. So thanks. That's awesome. Thank you so much. I can completely relate. Um, whenever I left, uh, I was an instructional coach when I left um, working on a campus to stay home with with our, at the time she was not born yet, <laughs> but she was on her way. And I, it was a big transition because even just like, well, people don't need you as much, you know, <laughs> the mm -hmm. little people in your house need you all the time, but you know, you're used to constantly having these demands and you fulfilling those demands is a big part of your identity. And so it's kind of like, okay, now what I have to set a plan and I have to fulfill that plan. And that is, that is how I'm going to decide what I do and how I do it. And it's a completely different um, ball game whenever you, whenever you're not, whenever you're working from home. Right. Right. And I was, had every intention of um, going back this year and then um, things kind of didn't work out that way. And I found out I was approved for my leave of absence on September 2nd and then wow. school started and it was just this abrupt shift and we're working with it. And um, yes, and I'm home with two littles and uh, it's, it's been fascinating to watch um, child development from the parent lens uh, for the, in such high focus for the yeah. last six months. It's been um, a real gift in also understanding my student development. So it's, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm, I feel like it's a big win. So I'll take it. That's great. Yes. It, you know, that is so true. I feel like, well, I was never an early childhood person. I was an upper elementary person and watching Annie grow and learn and develop. I'm, I'm like, Oh my gosh, I want to do preschool. <laughs> you know, it's just so neat to see it up close. <laughs> so true. So neurodiversity is this idea that we're talking about today, neurodiversity in, in, in education specifically. And it's a word that has popped up a lot, um, especially over the last few years, I feel like maybe that's just whenever I saw it more on my radar. Um, but mostly it's in reference to students. So can you define neurodiversity for us? Yes, it. I love this word. I love it so much. And it's such a part of my identity being neuro neurodivergent. Um, but it's a word that's actually been around since the late 90s. Mm -hmm. It's uh, It was coined by a sociologist. Uh, her name was Judy Singer. And she being on the autism spectrum herself, mm -hmm. really wanted to move the conversation about different ways that people think and learn away from these words like deficit and disorder mm -hmm. and impairment. And so she created the word to highlight the diversity of the human brain and really help folks understand that neurodiversity is just a biological reality, that um, they're just variations, right? Hum mm -hmm. Normal human variations. So while folks with ADHD or autism, dyslexia, dyscalculia, and so on are neurodivergent, they're also what makes up 
they're like part of the beauty that is neurodiversity. So I suppose neurodiversity has kind of shifted from this term of um, identifying to more of a, a movement kind of a word. Mm-hmm. So it's a word now that kind of signifies a, a desire to make environments more inclusive, right? And it, it rejects this idea that neurodivergent people like myself um, need to be fixed or that we need to be cured. Mm-hmm. So it's um, in education, I suppose, specifically, because that's where we're focusing, right? Um, it can be thought of more as, um, as an approach to learning and an understanding that our classrooms should be inclusive of neurological differences, um, just like we would hope that they're inclusive of all differences. So gender, ethnicity, race, sexual orientation, disability status, we want it to also encompass um, neurological differences. So we as teachers and coaches um, are looking to ensure that our teaching encompasses all of our students, including our neurodivergent scholars. Mm -hmm. Does that help? Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, it's it's um, it's interesting because if you think about different degrees of of this, I mean, everybody's brain functions slightly differently anyway, or else we would all think the same all the time, right? So, right. so we kind of accept certain differences, and then there becomes a zone outside of which we're not as comfortable, right? And we feel like we have to label that as a deficit or a disability. So that's interesting to think about that, you know, like, where is, it's interesting that's like, where's that line that we're like, well, this is okay. And this is a little farther than we're okay with. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it, it speaks to kind of the box that we expect students to fall in, mm-hmm. in education and who made the system and who it was made for and how many people we are leaving out. Mm-hmm. So, yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. So you have actually shared online. I, you know, I follow you on Instagram. Everybody should follow you on Instagram. Um, <laughs> there's so much great information there. And so you've shared about your own experience um, as being a neurodivergent. You mes- mentioned being neurodivergent yourself. And would you share a little bit about that here so we can understand your perspective? Yes, it, um, it is a bit of a long story, but I'll, I'm going to try to condense it as best I can. Tell um, the story. We got time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, well, I guess it makes, well, okay. It makes sense <laughs> to say that people who knew me when I was younger are usually greatly shocked to find out that I'm a teacher. Because I did not enjoy school at all when I was younger. So it's pretty remarkable that I now willingly spend every day in a classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose it started off okay, though, because I enjoyed kindergarten. I liked learning through play. I enjoyed the social aspects of it and making friends. But uh, as soon as it came time to um, have to learn to read, which I suppose is about first grade, mm-hmm. um, it, I was really quick to understand that I was not up to par with my peers. And I was in the lowest reading group um, for, for any teacher or coach out there listening who thinks that their students don't know that they're in the lowest reading group or they're being asked to pick from the lowest level bins in their library. Mm-hmm. We all know. We, we always know. We notice when our friends move in and out of our reading groups and we stay in the same one. Um, we know when our siblings surpass us in our reading, in our reading abilities. I have to say that was like one of the most crushing moments for me as a child, um, watching my sister who's two years younger, my brother who is 
five years younger, Mm -hmm. um, surpassing me. And eventually this inner voice started saying to me, like, you just can't do it. And nothing around me challenged that conclusion. So I just stuck with it, I suppose. And that's when I started acting out in school. And I started cheating. I cheated on everything inside and outside of school, um, which would probably surprise anybody who knows me now, because I'm quite the rule follower. But um, it got to this point where it was so scary to be seen as stupid, that I was more willing to be seen as anything else, even Mm -hmm. if it meant cheater or the bad kid or the one who, you know, um, argued with the teacher. So um, I suppose I just didn't want anyone else to find out what I already knew about myself, Mm -hmm. like anything to protect this big secret. Um, And that was pretty much my career path from second grade through 10th grade. Uh, I made it that far, which is miraculous. Um, I had, I was really, really smart. So I had a lot of great coping strategies and I also had the benefit of two really invested parents who read me every text at night, the text that I was supposed to read during the day and the text that I was supposed to read for homework so that I could try to keep up. Um, but eventually, um, you know, no matter how smart I was, no matter how many coping strategies I'd come up with, no matter how amazing my parents were and how tirelessly they advocated for me, I just hit a wall. Like all those um, strategies failed and I literally started to fail. I started to fail in 10th grade. I failed pretty much every subject one quarter and was had already failed many the quarter before. And that's when my guidance counselor called home and just, she is forever the person who kind of changed the trajectory of where I was going. She's an amazing woman. And she called home and said, like, why is this really smart kid failing? So she and my folks had a really great conversation and she had me tested. And I was at the age, I was already old enough to be able to get the results myself. And mm-hmm. so I was the one who was home when they called. Um, with the testing results. And I just remember picking up the phone and the person on the other line telling me um, most of my test scores were in the 97th through 99th percentile, like probably almost all of them, except maybe three or four. But it showed that I was really dyslexic and I had auditory processing issues. And then I was subsequently tested for ADHD and sensory processing issues, which, you know, ding, ding, ding. I, I won those two. And I just remember crying on the phone because everything finally made sense. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't stupid. I was at, like, actually the test showed that I was incredibly smart, but I was just wired differently. And those few areas where I was wired differently were impacting so much of my day. And mm-hmm. so I got the support I needed. Um, I graduated as part of National Honor Society and I went on to receive multiple extended degrees. And now I get to teach kids like me every day. And it's pretty wild. It's kind of like full circle almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. <clears throat> we, you mentioned that, I mean, that it was, it became clear whenever you were in kinder that you were having um, certain issues. What, did you not feel like you really got any sort of differentiated support all the way up until you got tested? Um, I remember in third grade going to a reading specialist mm-hmm. and while she may have been a very gifted reading specialist, I don't know. I don't know her personally. Um, I hated it. I hated going. I refused to go. And I would start acting out 
the second on the schedule that I knew it was coming and so that I would get pretty much thrown out before it was time to go. Mm -hmm. And um, anytime that I saw reading on a schedule or I knew it was time in middle school for ELA class, I would do something to get sent to the principal's office or to get in trouble. Like I remember I, I'm, I'm in Boston, so winter lasts forever here. <laughs> and I remember just going out and getting snow and bringing it in my jacket. I knew it was ELA time. And so I just started throwing snowballs into the science lab at kids because I didn't want to go to ELA. Mm-hmm. And I, it's so far from who I actually am. But at that point, I just would have done anything mm-hmm. to get out of it. Yeah, so yes, I'm sure they tried. I know my parents advocated and asked for me to be tested. But by that point, I was just seen as the behavior issue. And there was too much unpacking to do for them to be able to probably see what was really going on. Mm-hmm. That does happen. Um, it really does happen. And I, I know myself, I think I got kind of a reputation because I, it felt like I would refer so many kids for certain services in my class. I was an upper elementary teacher. And sometimes I felt like, how is it that these kids have been met? How did you not see what was happening? And so every year I felt like a big chunk of my job was just RTI and making sure that all my ducks were in a row so kids could get what they needed. But it was, I just, I never understood. And so, and as a coach, one thing that I hear that I'm, I'm hearing as you're talking is I'm hearing so many teachers who say things like, he can do it if he wants to, he just doesn't want to. And I'd say, how do you know he can do it if he wants to? And then they'd say, well, if I sit with him and then I coach him through the whole thing, he can do it. Like that's, but that's not the same thing. Are you, you're probably feeding him a lot of stuff without realizing that. And then he's like, okay, well, you're helping me. So I'll sit here and do this thing you're helping me with. But that doesn't mean he can do these things on his own. We cannot, we have to stop pretending like the only reason kids are not successful is because they're naughty. You know, that's not right. real. <laughs> yeah, there are, there are truly no bad kids. Like mm-hmm. every kid wants to be successful, but if they don't believe they can, or they don't have the strategies to do it, or they don't have a trusting relationship with an adult. And I'm not saying like the teacher thinks that it's a trusting relationship. The kid has to right. feel it like in every fiber of their being to take those risks to try again be so long that that voice in our head just tells us you can't, you can't, you can't, mm-hmm. and you believe it. And mm-hmm. so it, it takes so much to, to just actually try again in a space where you can feel safe. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, I read, long way of saying I 100% agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It always surprises me that like you said that it was like this pattern and it sounds like it was a pretty clear pattern of whenever you were being especially disruptive on purpose to detract from, you know, you having to do this literacy work and it's like, how did, come on guys. And how did you not see this? <laughs> you know? Right. But, right. And but, yeah. I think in other grades, it's kind of pervasive, like, especially in the older grades where so much is based off of reading Mm -hmm. Um, and being able to sit and attend. And so for social studies, for example, I couldn't read our social studies text and we would be asked to take these. I couldn't read the tests. Mm -hmm. And so I just remember being given tests in social studies and just writing, I am a fish at the top of it because we had just had science class and we learned fish have like no memory. And so I would just write that at the top and I would hand it in and 
my teacher thought I was being completely defiant and that I didn't care. And mm-hmm. like, I would get in trouble and mm-hmm. I, I just couldn't even read what was on the page. Cause I was really dyslexic and nobody knew. Right. So yeah, it's so, it's so complicated and it's not a one size fits all. Like my story mm-hmm. of having all these struggles, I might have the same di- diagnosis as somebody else, but their story looks so different. Mm-hmm. So you really have to kind of tune in and be willing to unpack because we're not, we're not all the same. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, that's that building relationships and getting to know kids and listening and a- asking and noticing is so important. Um, <clears throat> and so I want to talk about neurodiversity in our, in our educators, because mm-hmm. I know as a coach, I once worked with a teacher who shared with me that she was diagnosed with ADHD And she talked a little bit about how that affected just her teaching in general. And I was, it was fascinating to me because it's not something I had really ever thought about. I always had lots of students in my classroom with, with different needs and we would respond to those, but it had not occurred to me for whatever reason. Um, Well, probably because I'm, I do not have those issues, right? So we're blinded, Mm -hmm. we have these blind spots. So it hadn't occurred to me that that would be an issue that some of my teachers were also dealing with. So I'm wondering what should coaches be aware of when they're working with teachers, whenever this might not be so obvious. I mean, it's not like you're going to walk up to someone and ask, so you may not know (laughs) and they may not tell you, right. But what should we be aware of? That's not really obvious to us. Right. And I I think it's also important to know that they might not know. That's true. Because for Mm -hmm. so many of us, I was one of I mean, I've been in education for a bit, um, but I was one of that first generation of kids getting diagnosed. Mm -hmm. And I was that very first generation of Ritalin um, Mm kind of trials. And so there are many of my colleagues are are far more veteran than I am and maybe struggling with the same things, but they have never been on the radar as somebody who potentially should get tested. So Um, they, they may not even be as aware of it themselves. So yes, it it might be that they don't know. It might be that they don't want to tell you. It might be that it it could be so many pieces, Mm -hmm. but, um, I think that there are a lot of assumptions about ADHD and dyslexia that compound issues for neurodivergent teachers in the workplace. So a big one is, um, that ADHD is a childhood disorder. And people should people outgrow it, and mm-hmm. um, it it's probably like as teachers we think about the students in front of us and the longevity of these issues. We are so fixated on curing and fixing, and we do it with reading and we do it with math, and we see these benchmarks and watch our students make progress. And while neurodivergent kids do make progress um, in kind of formulating strategies and structures to live within it's a part of who we are and it doesn't go away. We don't, we, I mean, I personally don't want to be fixed or cured. I love the way my brain thinks it has made my life incredibly difficult sometimes, but it's something that is kind of the core of us. So it's not something that we are going to outgrow. So that's just one piece is that I think there's just this assumption. And so we don't look to recognize it in adults. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also just other misconceptions around that ADHD is mm, like the only symptom would be inattention. 
when it's far more complicated than that. And like my struggle specifically with ADHD, it affects my short-term memory. It affects my executive functioning skills, my sensory needs, my auditory processing, my ability to work within other people's systems of how things should be done. Um, it's, it's probably the most exhausting part of my job is trying to fit myself into what other people need me to be in the workplace. So as soon as I close my door and teach, that part of my life is really easy, but it's all the other pieces that make it so difficult. So for a coach um, to kind of be aware of some of these pieces, I, I should actually probably say that um, I can't speak to the, inter in the entire neurodivergent umbrella. Um, I can speak to ADHD and dyslexia. Mm -hmm. So I, I may or may not have crowdsourced a bit before I came on here. Um, I have a few fellow Instagram friends who are also neurodivergent. And I wanted to make sure, because like I said, we are not one size fits all. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to make sure that other voices kind of got their um, ideas and needs amplified here. So I reached out specifically to um, Tamara Moore from If Pencils Could Talk and uh, Reese T from Teaching with Mixed Tea and Matt Halpern, whose handle is Healthy One mm -hmm. over on Instagram. So if you don't follow them already, they're brilliant. They are also very open with their, um, you know, living as a neurodivergent and the amazing superpowers that come with it um, as also, as well as some of those struggles. So um, some of the things that we discussed when I was just kind of telling them that I was going to be on and just saying, you know, we do this work every day. What do you wish the people we worked with knew? Mm -hmm. And um, they, our answers were so similar and then broken up into like how it looks for us each individually. And it was really fascinating. So for example, all of us kind of agree that we need help breaking down big tasks into manageable chunks. A lot of that comes from our executive functioning. And so when somebody is kind of top down, whether it's from a coach or administration or anything, um, asking us to take on a new project, it is, it's very abstract and big, and sometimes mm -hmm. it's really hard for us to break it down. So um, Reese shared that they would like or welcome support on how to simplify and streamline procedures so it's not so overwhelming. And um, I think they said it perfectly when they shared that uh, neurodivergent teachers need help with all the day-to-day -day little mundane tasks that oftentimes seem really easy for other educators. So for example, like email. Email is truly one of the most daunting things to me. And it was to these friends as well. Um, I have um, probably somewhere in the range of 30,000 to 70,000 unread emails on my phone. And it doesn't even bother me anymore, that little red bubble, because it's not something I can control. But knowing that other people are disappointed in me because I can't keep up with it mm. is constantly a weight. Mm -hmm. And um, I know that can be very similar for other um, for others who are neurodivergent as well. Um, I mentioned that Reese said uh, streamlining procedures, but I don't mean like give us the procedures. It's more co-creating mm -hmm. the procedures because um, Tamara shared that oftentimes the systems that we are given make no sense to our brain. Mm -hmm. Like. Um, we will see a data spreadsheet that we're expected to put things in. And 
there is no way that my brain understands how it is supposed to work. Mm -hmm. It can sometimes be as simple as flipping the X and Y axes, but other times it's just because that is not how my brain can sift through information and sort it. And so sometimes when it's when able, co-creating those systems can be really, really helpful. Um, Tamara also uh, mentioned flexibility around deadlines, offering gentle reminders. Mm -hmm. I tell everybody that I ever work with that I have the best intentions in the world, but my ability to follow through on things is limited unless I'm given reminders. Mm -hmm. And I never mind the reminders. <laughs> like I welcome them. I, I know that my truest friends at work are the ones who are going to text me and say, hey, just a reminder, that's due in 10 minutes. Like Windows closing if you want to sign up. Mm -hmm. Those are my best people. They're looking out for me. Um, and they know that my brain wants to do it, but it can't remember. Um, having like expectations and structures can be really great around timeframes, being given a visual of a timeframe, um, expectations around when I should respond to emails and when I shouldn't. Um, Tamara said, basically, think of it as though we have an IEP for the workplace. Mm -hmm. Many of us had IEPs as students and they just poof, disappear when you mm -hmm. become an adult and are expected to go into the workplace. And while we've internalized a lot of the supports that we were given, it hasn't changed how we function. Mm -hmm. And um, so if you, as a coach or as an admin or somebody who is looking to support teachers who may be neurodivergent, thinking about those check marks within the IEP, did I provide these accommodations? Uh, it, it can really make or break a relationship and um, kind of be freeing in a way that a teacher could feel really energized and feel like this is accessible and this is something I can be really successful with um, and be a support rather than feel like it is just another task weighing them down that they will feel badly that they aren't able to complete or complete up to their standards. Mm -hmm. Does that does that help? Yes. Yeah. I just That's wanted to make lot. sure you had anything else. I think it was very good. <laughs> I'm so glad that you asked um, these other people to contribute to that because I think that's great. And I do follow all three of those individuals <laughs> on mm -hmm. Instagram as well. Um, I think as I'm, as I was listening, I was picturing specific interactions because the only teacher that I know of is this one who shared this with me, right? That though, I, like you're saying, there are probably others that, that who are neurodi neurodivergent as well. And that I just did not know, but I'm thinking about specific interactions that we had and certain things that I found over time were helpful to her. And, and I can, I can see a lot of that at play, you know, in what you're describing a lot of these things, several like co-creating procedures and giving reminders. Those are things that are good for lots of people. <laughs> mm -hmm. So not surprisingly, like you talked about chunking things, just like when you're teaching in the classroom, chunking is essential for some kids and for other kids, it's helpful. Right. right. And for other, and so maybe it's like not a survival, like this is what's keeping me afloat right now, but it is going to help me, you know? So a lot of what you're talking about is really good stuff that we could be doing or at least differentiating as we yes. see that it's needed for lots of different teachers. And that's the beauty of coaching support is it doesn't look the same for everybody. So if you do have a group of teachers that need something different, you can provide different kinds of support to those teachers. 
um, mm-hmm. which is, which is great. And then like the constant reminders, I, I haven't met a teacher who didn't benefit from frequent <laughs> reminders, especially <laughs> with a new system. Right. Um, right. but some people appreciate it and some people not as much. So I, even I, I was, I was more bad. I was terrible with dates mostly because I just was not that interested in what had to be done by that date. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm, I'm more of like a, if it's not important to me, I, I, it's off my radar. If it's not interesting or, or relevant. <laughs> And so I also had a, a, a colleague who would say, remember your, you know, your forms are due today or you got to get those turned in tomorrow. And we're like, okay, fine, fine, fine. Um, then I would do it. And it was helpful. But as a coach, I became that person that would mm-hmm. also send out, remember we're having this coming up. So if you can get this data to me by this day, that'd be great. And, and it, it was, people really right. did appreciate it. So I'm sure that that was, um, a common need and especially a need for certain people, um, who were, we're just juggling a lot. We ask so much. You mentioned executive functioning. And that is, I feel like that is the number one thing that we ask of teachers is you have to have 9,000 pieces of information in your brain at the same time. You have to do something with each of them simultaneously. And don't forget all the stuff that's coming up next. And it's just, it's crazy. It's just so much. I am, I I mean, you can see, but your listeners can see, I am furiously nodding (laughs) to everything that you're saying, because it's just so true. And like you said, it, it's not a lifeline for everyone, but it benefits everyone. It's just like our classrooms. We say all these strategies Mm -hmm. will benefit all students, but they are, they are the the life jacket for others. Mm -hmm. And while some things did, they like, people can't understand why something so small is so difficult, but those little lifelines that are offered are just so appreciated um, when they are and saying, you know what, I understand that I just gave you an entire month's worth of work to do. Let's talk about how many, how many assessments we should be working on a day Mm -hmm. and um, let's check in at the end of the week and see how many you got through and let's try to plan, um, what the, what the following week could look like based on this week. And mm-hmm. it's not a judgment. It's not, I'm not coming in to like micromanage and look, I'm just really looking to um, help you figure out how to make this big task um, feel more manageable to you. Mm-hmm. Because the, uh, every time I see an email and it's just a list of bullet points of things that have to be done, I close it because it is so overstimulating that I wait until I get home and I copy and paste it into a document and I literally delete all of the bullets except one. And I look at it and then I try to figure out a plan Mm -hmm. and I have to break it up that way because I don't always, we have coaching, but they're newer at my school. And so it's um, something that's still kind of being felt out. But if I had somebody there who was willing to do that piece with me and co-create um, the chunks and help me kind of visualize what the next few weeks could bring. That would be, that would just be so amazing. <laughs> I, I wonder how helpful it is. We, one thing we, I used to do, and I'm wondering if this would have been helpful to you. And granted, I know, like you said, everybody's going to be different in this, but mm-hmm. um, you know, for PLCs, one of the things that I would do at the beginning of every PLC, because we had it um, every week, I, we would alternate grade levels. So I had a um, K2 four one week for 90 minutes and the next week I'd have one, three, five. And we, our focus was planning, but at the beginning I do like, okay, this is like our little update. You remember these are, these are important dates coming up. 
And then mm-hmm. we would talk about certain things like big projects, big tasks. And we'd say, well, what could we do? And it was a collaborative thing. It was like a grade level thing. Um, and people would share, well, this is what I was going to do. This is what I was thinking. This is how I'm going to approach this. Um, is that helpful? Is that overwhelming? Is what is, you know, what is your response to that? So I actually feel like this could go either way. I think that it can be really, really helpful to review expectations and plans going forward because often I can't hold on to them the first time, especially if they're only provided in the first round um, verbally or if it's Mm -hmm. given to me only in written format because usually written format um, with my dyslexic brain can be really hard. So usually a first pass is um, I'm I'm not getting it all anyway. So it can be really helpful to review the pressure sometimes to formulate a plan or to be able to have that uh, that breakdown in my brain on the spot um, can be really difficult. So a, a kind of forced response, um, I might just be regurgitating what somebody else said just because I can't formulate my own ideas at the time. But it might be helpful to hear what other people say because one of the things that is nice for me is... Um, the way I, I love working is um, pulling ideas from lots of different places and pulling what might work and creating something that will work with my brain. And I know that that goes for a lot of people, people who aren't neurodivergent. So I could see that helping a lot of folks um, being able to um, just kind of bounce ideas off of one another and take what works. But I think the pressure to have a response um, and have it be an original response might might send up like the, the, the red flags for me. And then that anxiety of not being able to respond and spending the entire time thinking, what am I going to respond with would block me from being able to hear any of the other ideas people are offering. So I would lose all the good that came because I was, you know, it's like popcorn reading, you you know, you, you, you miss the entire story around you because you're too focused on trying to read your little piece and get it right. So you've actually like, you've missed the entire class because you're just focusing on your one part that is a forced canned response. Does that make sense? Yes, I totally agree with that. Yeah, and I, I would never require like, well, so what are you gonna, everybody has to share their individual plan because I think that's contrived and it's not really that helpful. Um, but yeah, I think that having that conversation of, of does anybody have any ideas, you know, what you're gonna mm-hmm. try, I think that that can be, um, helpful. And then, yeah, I, I would agree not to force anybody to share any plans, especially if it was a new initiative. But people don't all think that way, um, that mm-hmm. we immediately create a plan on something that's coming up. That's just, I'm a planner, but not everybody is. <laughs> I've um, never owned a planner because I can't use one. Oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I, I can buy them, but the ability to actually utilize them is um, beyond my scope at the moment. So I, I still... I still have not. That's funny. Yeah, I used to be really good at keeping dates in my head. And then I just had too many dates to keep in my head, I think. <laughs> so now I have to write it all down. <laughs> well, as a coach, I imagine your schedule is not the same every day. You know, for teaching, it was nice because at least on days I hoped, you know, you have more or less of the same schedule. And like lunch is always on the same day it's Tuesday, this is what I do. So for coaching, I imagine it's a little bit trickier. Yeah, that's true. It is a lot of every day is very different. 
Um, and then things get changed all the time on you and you get the rug pulled out from under you a lot. So we were, you know, you're writing your notebook in pencil <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah. So I would imagine that especially professional development or any kind of professional learning opportunity that's in a group could be especially torturous <laughs> for people who are neurodivergent. I have a real issue saying this word. I am not sure why this is so hard for me. For people who are neurodivergent. So what are some of the biggest challenges to learning in a group setting with a facilitator who's actually facilitating that learning? I, I told you right before we started this that PD is they are the hardest days for me. And it's not because I don't like learning. Learning is my, my favorite. I'm so curious. I love asking questions. I love thinking outside the box and problem solving. And and all of those pieces of PD are, they make me really excited, but the format and the environment of PD just makes me groan in the morning when I wake up and I have to go to this. And it's never against the person facilitating. Um, I've been blessed with amazing, amazing coaches and PD um, folks, but um, (laughs) there are huge misconceptions about people with ADHD that we're lazy or unmotivated. And the truth is that people with ADHD are trying just as hard, if not so much harder to pay attention and be present um, in these kinds of situations. So people with ADHD like me, um, we often struggle with sensory integration issues. So I can just be completely thrown off by the lighting in a room. If it's too bright, I can't think, I can't focus. I I perseverate on the amount of light that is entering my eyes and it's Uh, it's overwhelming. Um, The texture of the chair that I sit in can throw off the whole day because it can feel like I have bugs crawling on me and I can't focus on anything else. Um, As someone who is uh, the hyperactive end of ADHD, um, being asked to sit for long periods and stay focused is really difficult. So unless I'm in a setting where I feel really comfortable with the presenter, I don't feel like I can get up and move around and do what my body is screaming at me to do. And so, so I'm not able to pay attention. I'm not able to get the learning that I want to be doing for somebody who's dyslexic like me. um, Font choice in a presentation can make or break it for me. Um, Font choice in the readings that we're given can make or break it. Um, I also have an auditory processing issue. So PD sessions are often just, hurdle after hurdle after hurdle. So trying to take in things just by listening if there's not a visual prompt or the person is not um, offering images or an outline to support it. It, The PD session itself disrupts my everyday routine and routine helps me and my neurodivergent mind stay, um, stay focused and stay present and alert. But PD breaks all of my routines and it alters my normal sensory happy atmosphere in my classroom that I have made to like respond to my body and and my students. Um, So it just presents challenge after challenge that might seem completely um, irrelevant to anyone else. But for me, the the smallest thing can, can make it just such a miserable day. It truly can. And it, it, it could be the most amazing content 
being provided by the most gifted speaker. And it won't matter because I won't be available to hear it. And I will, and then I'll go into like this very, you know, unhealthy spiral of feeling, um, taking all the blame for it, even though it was out of my control um, and kind of rehashing the assumptions that I've internalized. Like it was my fault. I'm just lazy. I could have done better. I could have been more focused. Like it's all in my head, you know? And so, yeah, it's nobody's fault, but um, again, it's just trying to fit us all into this little box of a presentation room and it often doesn't work. Those are really good points. Um, I, I had mentioned it whenever we were first talking as well, that I am not a huge, I'm, I'm, I'm a bad PD participant. And I have said this so many times on, on my blog and I've said it on the podcast before, and that is how I know at least some of the pitfalls that, that people fall into with PD, because those are the moments that I would be bad. Um, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, you know, a lot of them are, you know, if I, if it's redundant, if I feel like it's, it's a lot of cute stuff that's not really purposeful. If I've sat through the same PD a million times, those kinds of things, it's more about the learning than the environment. Um, so it's interesting to hear about the environment and the mode of learning and those kinds of, of factors being, you know, what's inhibiting people from learning. It's interesting to think about that because I tend to think more about the content and of course the way people interact with the content, but it hasn't occurred to me. Like when I, and if I go to a school to do a professional development right now, I walk into a room and they stick you where they stick you. And I have had to do PD in places that I'm like, this is a truly horrible place. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't get to choose. Um, and those factors can be really damaging to a person's ability to learn in that environment. So that's really interesting to think about um, whenever administrators and coaches have the option to create a different kind of environment, then that would be really great for them to consider um, the needs of people who are, let's see if I can do it, who are neurodivergent. That's why I need to do. I need to give myself a little pause in between the syllables. That'll help. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So that's something to think about whenever they're creating these spaces and they don't always have the option or, you know, the control to do that, but that would be probably really helpful to get input on that um, whenever they're building PD spaces. Mm -hmm. So what could a really great PD look like that meets the varied needs of teachers? Do you have any thoughts on what coaches could do that would make that more effective? Yes. Um, so like taking everything I said before, which mm-hmm. felt really negative. Um, <laughs> sorry. And trying to, trying, to, <laughs> trying to spin it positive. Um, I will give a lot of credit to um, a, a reading coach at my school that I, you know, I'm currently on leave from, mm-hmm. but she has um, taken um, great strides to try and accommodate my learning style as long as well as some others. Um Perhaps learning style isn't the right word, but just the the way that we take in information best in the environment that she could create that would make us the most successful. And um, it it meant the world that she has she has taken it upon herself to try and make this content more accessible because what she was trying to teach us and the new systems being brought in to us to really shift our literacy block was very overwhelming. And so the information that needed to come with it was also very overwhelming. And so how to support teachers as you give them this content and make it, um, make it something that they can, they can digest 
uh, she understood that the environment was equally as important sometimes as the content and how she was providing it. So some things that she would do were um, she would offer a Google form and she would just send it out to everybody and ask things that would, you know, help um, make your PD experience better. And she would ask things like, you know, would it be more helpful for you to be on site or would you like it to be at town hall? And, you know, the difference is she didn't ask why necessarily, but for some of us being at town hall means that you're not going to have kids outside walking by the classroom and distracting you the whole time, Mm -hmm. or you're not going to be, you're going to be in the library looking at books instead of actually listening to PD. Um, You know, town hall often was just like you could escape town hall also um, had the ability to have dimmer switches, which was huge for me because dimmer switches meant that we could um, change the amount of stimulus that was coming in from the environment. It had shades that you could turn and um, remove a lot of the outside chaos that was happening, whereas our spaces at our school did not have that. Um, they had different table setups and different chairs. And so she, she was very careful with kind of how she asked. But then also in her Google Forms, she would ask things like, what can I do ahead of time to make this PD more successful for you? Mm-hmm. And left it very open-ended. And sometimes, um, uh, you know, you, people would respond with provide coffee or mm-hmm. something funny and silly that everybody would obviously love. <laughs> but I one time asked, and I was just, it was a really vulnerable moment after being through a really hard PD day. Um, I asked if I could have the readings ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Because it takes me about three to four times longer than all of my peers to get through a text. And I would never make it through. I would usually be on page one or two of a five-page packet when it would be time to clean, like to have the conversations. And I would never have been done. And so I couldn't participate in my groups like I wanted to. And then I just felt stupid. And it was like flashback to middle school. Right. And um, I just asked her if I could have them ahead of time. And I know it probably put more work on her because... Sometimes we are all running around last minute, but she did it. And they were always in my mailbox. And I only asked her once. And from that point on for the next two years, they were always in my mailbox. And she remembered. And I can't tell you how validating that was and just how much um, empathy I felt from her and just recognizing that that was something that I needed. I didn't even have to tell her why, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she also said like, how many reminders would you like? Like, would you like these, you know, do you need any reminders? Do you not want to? And, um, and then she put something like, um, if I send out reminders, can I also add an apology at the end? If you didn't need it, like, right. you know, <laughs> right. I mean, so you don't have to tweak your email every time and make more work for you. But if you just apologize for people forgiving, um, <laughs> She did lots and lots of wonderful things that really made me understand the importance of these, these accommodations as an adult. Cause I didn't, I don't, I don't recall anybody doing that for me before. Mm-hmm. And as she started doing it, I was like, Oh my God, this is making such a difference. I saw my participation level increase tenfold. I had great ideas to share. I had highlighted my packets. I was, talking to my team about like this part really stood out to me. This reading really made me think of this kid. And like, we, each of us have these 
kids in our classroom? Like, what are we doing to, um, to, to modify our curriculum to meet their needs? Um, it was, it was huge. And then she realized, um, I asked her in one of, you know, one of her feedback forms, Mm -hmm. I said, can you change the font on your presentation? She like adults, we like cute fonts, right? They're, they're adorable. I'm a huge font, this huge font snob. But I was having a really difficult time reading them on the projector. Mm-hmm. And so I just asked her if she could use a different font. And I recommended a few fonts that are really dyslexic friendly. And she changed them and she changed the coloring. That's also something that's really huge is if there's um, color contrast that's uh, like, you know, pink on the screen. It's really hard for me to see a red. Um, and be, I'm much better if it's black or gray. And she made those changes and holy cow, I could read the screen and she had them up and she had it bulleted and broken up. So I wasn't reading huge chunks of text. I don't know if it was all for me. That would be really egocentric of me to think she did it all for me. (laughs) But, um, all these changes made just a really, really huge difference that she was willing to fix the slides, talk about them at the same time. So I had the visual input, the auditory input, both working in my favor so I could get as much as I could. Um, yeah, it, it, it was game changing. And I, I got the most out of PD in those few years I had with her mm-hmm. running it because she tweaked it to meet my needs than I did in probably the 10 years before. And it had nothing to do with the content or even the response to the content. It was about the mode of delivery, like, and the way that it just really the, the, all of those factors that go into sharing information. That's so interesting. That's amazing. She, she's, um, she's a real gift. And I love that she and I can argue about topics and have very passionate, heated conversations. And I respect the crap out of her because she understands that we are all humans and we all need different things. And mm-hmm. she is going to advocate for us, whether we agree with her, with her or not, mm-hmm. she'll advocate for us and do her best by us. Mm-hmm. So yeah, she, she's a heck of a coach. That's so interesting. Um, getting feedback from teachers is so important in your coaching work, like ongoing, and it really should be important also in just running a school. <laughs> Uh, you know, administrators should want feedback from teachers all the time as well. Um, but, but yeah, I think that that's one of the things that I've been really thinking about a lot is how do we get this information from teachers? How do we, you know, make sure that we are being responsive to what they need? Um, I actually recently put a resource in my store that includes Google forms and also printable surveys that you can use after PD and just throughout the year for different topics Mm -hmm. so that teachers can provide you with this information on, in an ongoing way. Um, even if it's a check-in and maybe not everybody needs to give you something to think about, but the people who do have that opportunity because you're making it available regularly. Right. Right. And just the idea of differentiating, um, Matt Halpern, Mm -hmm. who I mentioned earlier said that just giving us choices in how we're going to take in the information is huge. Um, like giving us three different ways to, um, take it in or work. Do you want to work by yourself? Do you want to work with a partner? Do you want to work with a group? Um, just gives us choice. And he, mm-hmm. I think he said choice and voice mm-hmm. over his learning. Mm-hmm. And that's something we offer our students, but so right. rarely do we offer it to adults. Yes. Um, so just thinking that if it's, if it's best practice in the classroom, it's also best practice in PD. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's excellent. 
So in thinking about that, is is the school system, like the larger system set up to support teachers who are experiencing this in any way? Um, and what are some of the challenges that, that teachers who are neurodivergent have in working within the system as it is set up? That's such a fantastic question because I think like the rest of the education system, it was created by certain people mm-hmm. for certain people. And so I do not think it is um, its foundation is meant to support teachers who are neurodivergent. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think so many of us who are neurodivergent do not go into education because of our experiences with education. Mm-hmm. Most of us, I am, I am so fortunate with how my story turned out because I had uh, an incredible support system at home. I ended up with some really amazing adults who looked out for my best interest and saw past the behaviors, but mm-hmm. a lot of people don't do, do not have that privilege. And so they don't get to go back into education and have that voice heard to make those changes. So there aren't as, as many of us as there are neuro- neurotypical um, teachers out there. And so, no, I don't think it's set up to help us be successful. I think um, there are a lot of things that we can do to change it. I think we are becoming so data-driven and data means, you know, setting up systems, inputting info, like having deadlines, having all of these procedures in place. And those are all things that I'm so terrible with. And it's removing all the things I'm so good at, which is that, you know, because my brain is wired differently, it's creative and it thinks about things differently and it problem solves differently and I can get at information differently. And I used to be able to have these one-on-one times with my students, especially the ones who are struggling, who look like me, um, you know, in their brain and be able to have these conversations with them about what it's like to struggle like this. And I feel like less and less of my time is being able to be spent um, developing those relationships and building those pieces because the system continues to move in a direction that is less and less in line with um, it, with how I can operate in a classroom. And it's been really difficult. Um, even though I'm getting more and more years experience, I don't feel like it's getting easier because mm-hmm. of how it's shifting. Yeah, it's becoming very rigid, more and more rigid, um, less differentiation, less support, and more expectations, and they all have to be done the same way. So yeah, I, I, yes. I can see why that would be a challenge. Um, what are, is there anything else that you can add? You talked about certain things that instructional coaches can do to better serve and support teachers with varied needs. Is there anything else that you'd like to add to that, that we can think about um, going forward with working with our teachers? anything we could do to, to really meet the needs of teachers as well as we can? Yeah, I, I'm going to go back to something I said about being a student and needing to feel really safe in order to take those academic risks. And I think I spoke really highly of a specific coach. And I think another big piece of that was the relationship that coach had built with me and the other teachers that she worked with, um, she worked really hard to build 
um, an individual rapport with each of us. It wasn't um, a coach teacher relationship. It was like, it, it was much more than that. She, I really felt like she wanted to better my teaching and it was never this shaking her finger at me kind of feeling. Um, it was never a, you know, breakdown of all the things I did wrong versus mm-hmm. all the things I did right. It was always a conversation and she treated me like a professional and um, I always felt that. And so the relationship she built with me was what allowed me to ask for help mm-hmm. on those forms. I didn't, I didn't respond in the first, you know, X amount of time I had spent with her. But once I felt really comfortable in her presence and understood kind of where her values lied in early in terms of PD and what she was offering me as a teacher, I, I kind of felt like I could be more vulnerable mm-hmm. and say, this is what's hard for me. Um, but if I, if I didn't have the relationship with her, I don't think that would have ever happened. So I think just like we say with students, relationships first. Mm-hmm. And that trust has to be built for us to feel comfortable taking those steps that can be really scary and admitting where we, where things are really hard when we know that for the majority of the people, it, it's not hard. Mm-hmm. That's such good advice. I totally agree in general. I mean, <laughs> with everyone, there, there are people who are going to have varied needs regardless of the reason why. And whenever people are not comfortable enough to share with you what it is that they're struggling with, then you cannot be a good coach because you can't, you can't serve the people that you're there to serve if they don't want to tell you anything, <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> just like in the classroom, if your kids don't want to tell you when something is hard, you cannot help them with that. So, um, exactly. so yeah, that's really great. That's a really great, um, piece of advice. I just have to ask one question because I was thinking, I don't know why I was thinking about this, but One of the things that during PD that I don't like the most is whenever they make me get up and talk to other people. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Some people really like that. I've actually had teachers ask for more of that, which is so foreign to me, but some people Mm -hmm. love it, but I'm like, don't I'm, I'm in my bubble. Like I'm here. I am camped out. I am focused. I'm doing my thing. If you just want to talk and you want me to listen and write, I'm good. I can learn that way. That's totally fine. I don't Mm -hmm. have to go anywhere. I'll read an article. I'll write you a paper and I'll go home. I'll be good. But But they always want me to go talk to people. And every time they they're like, so we're going to number off. I'm like, Oh, (laughs) yeah. The worst. How do you feel about that? (laughs) Well, I will say that, um, ADHD is, um, you know, it's such a big umbrella. And because Mm -hmm. there are so many different facets, there's the hyperactivity, there's the Mm -hmm. inattention, there's the combined, um, people often only think about, uh, like the hyperactive and Mm -hmm. like, we must be extroverts because we're always like talking and and, you know, everything's happening so fast all the time. We must want to participate in this. (laughs) And then I think of the other people within that umbrella and so many of them are introverts Mm -hmm. and that is not something that, excites them. It creates more anxiety. Um, those social interactions can be really hard. And, um, me personally, I just groan because I don't get to choose who I talk to. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> um, I don't always want to just go talk to somebody random. It's not, yeah. um, it's just not something that I'm keen on doing, especially if it's before I've had my coffee. Um, <laughs> but I think, 
again, back, uh, back to something Matt Halpern said is offering that choice. And uh -huh. so you said, if you would rather sit and read this article, great. If you want to go talk to somebody about it, um, like uh, people who want to talk, why don't you head over to this wall and find a partner? Um, if you would prefer just giving the options, I think is great. But yeah, the, the forced piece can, it's, it can throw so many off and you don't know the reason why. Right. You don't know the reason why. So mm -hmm. as often as you can offer a choice to your teachers, as well as to your students, it can be a forced choice. You know, you want them all to be doing this one thing, but give them two or three different ways to go about it. Mm -hmm. I, I think, I think that's everybody's best option. I feel like at least the benefit of, so this is, this episode is coming out in November. Um, but this people went through so much learning during the pandemic and so much had to change about PD. So I feel like one thing that I've seen that has come about is people have gotten a little better about differentiating because PD so much oftentimes had to be done online and not everybody can sit there and watch a 30 minute video and then complete this assignment or whatever. And so people got better about providing like choice boards or different ways of mm -hmm. responding um, or they would chunk the content. And I feel like that learning that we did, we have to, this, this pandemic has been this most horrific thing, but we can pull these good things out of it that we did learn because we had to be different, right? We had to do things differently. So from mm -hmm. there, we can pull things from that and say, okay, well, I have learned something about differentiating PD and different modes of PD. And so I can integrate that into my future practice and figure out ways to give people choice, whether we're in person or online or whatever it is. Um, so yeah. at least that's something that we can, that we can say that came out of all this that has been good because I, I coaches had to become, and PD providers had to become pretty uh, creative. <laughs> right. Creative in how they ask for interaction, yes. especially like, so it's not just six hours of straight talking, but how do you get somebody <laughs> to interact with you um, virtually? Like we do with our students, like every 10 minutes, what, what is the thing that you're, what's the question you're asking them to respond to? How are you having a, you know, your little online posted board of everybody's yeah. thoughts? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. It, I hope that when this is all over, I, I hope by the time it airs, maybe we're in a better place. But I think that we we have had to think so differently. And I hope that we can kind of come out of it on the other side with a better understanding of how to meet the needs of everyone, teachers and students, because um, we can get there. Mm -hmm. There, Neurodiversity is a beautiful thing. And if we can embrace it, especially in education, we can really be kind of modeling it for the rest of the world and the rest of the workplaces. We're the, t we're the people who should know it the best because of how we serve our students. Mm -hmm. And so if we can also model that and uh, mirror it in the workplace side of teaching, it would just, it would be amazing. It would be that an, am such an amazing feat. So if coaches only walk away with one idea from this whole episode, what would you want it to be? that while you know not everyone learns the way you do, it is important to come to teaching and coaching with that always at the forefront 
So mm-hmm. you're not putting information on to someone, but you are offering it and working with them to make it accessible. Because everyone, no matter if they're neurodivergent or neurotypical, they're going to need something different from you. And uh, you can have the best of intentions and the most amazing, well thought out um, content to offer them and support. But if it's not done in a way that they can make sense of on their own and internalize it on their own, then it's, it, it unfortunately renders itself useless. And if you have this gift to offer, figure out how to give it to them in a way that they can make meaning of it. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. How can people find you online to learn more, to follow you, to continue to learn from you? Um, I love welcoming folks to my little corner of the internet. Um, <laughs> so I'd love any of your folks to come find me on Instagram. My handle is Jillian Star Teaching. Stars with two R's. Um, I also have a Facebook group for teachers and specialists in grades one, two, and three. Um, it's called Elementary Teaching with Jillian Star and um, the hub where you can find pretty much anything and all connections to me is my website, which is jillianstarteaching.com. Perfect. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me today. Chrissy, thank you so much for having me. This has been so much fun. And it's been so lovely to think about how we can be supporting teachers everywhere. You are such a gift to our community. So thanks for including me in it. Thank you so much. That's very sweet. We appreciate you. That gave me a lot to think about, and I'm so thankful to Jillian for sharing all of her her experience and all of this information with us today, because I think her perspective is invaluable. Next week, I am actually talking to the Instructional Coaching Corner about working with teens. That's going to be episode 86. And we're going to talk about how you can work with teens to teachers, PLCs, you know, grade levels, groups, because there's a special art (laughs) to working with teams of teachers. So we're going to have a really great conversation about that. Um, It's Greg Dutmeyer that he that is going to share with me. And so I'm looking forward to sharing that episode with you. And until then, happy coaching. Thank you for listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast. Want more coaching ideas? Check me out at buzzingwithmissb.com and on Instagram at buzzingwithmissb. If you love the show, share it with a coach who would love it too, or leave me a review on iTunes. It's free and it helps others find this show. Happy coaching. Happy coaching.